The first reading is Daniel 8, and it starts on page 8 of your zines. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision, after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Eulale Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attacked the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another ram, another horn, sorry, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw, it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be a great, as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled, the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people? He said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man, and I heard a man's voice from the Uli calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Medea and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. The four horns that replaced the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. 
He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will, not be, yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given you is true, but seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. The next reading is Daniel chapter 12. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Then I, Daniel, looked... And there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, it will be for a time, times and half a time. When the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? He replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up here, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance." great to be with you. There's a third reading there, but it was a marathon enough for Lauren. Well done, Lauren. Uh, and we will refer to it later. Um, we've been looking at the book of Daniel the last seven weeks. In seven weeks, we have done seven chapters, and then tonight, we do four. And they're not the easiest of the chapters, so... Uh, I don't know how you felt as you read, but it's a little overwhelming task, but let's have a go anyway and see where we get. Have that open. Uh, we'll be referring to all the chapters, although they weren't all read. So in your own time, if you read through chapters 8 to 12, um, you'll get a sense of where we're looking at tonight. Uh, I bought a book this week. Uh, my children enjoy books. We enjoy books. Uh, and they are 
what one has described as cartographically curious, that is, they love maps. And in literature, maps are kind of magical, aren't they? If you think about it, uh, the stories that you read growing up, uh, they can take us to other worlds. And this book's called The Writer's Map. It's the Atlas of Imaginary Lands, and it's filled with maps from, from literature and kind of fun other stories along with that and reflections from people. And as, as I was reading it, I was, I was opening the... Um, the front page, and it speaks of maps in this way. It says, maps have the power to transport us, lift us out of the moment, and fill us with wonder and possibility. Maps have the power to transport us. And as we look at Daniel today, he's laying out a map of the future through images. And what he's seeking to do is to transport Israel, who is in exile, uh, to another place, as it were, to stand outside of time and to see the map, to see the destination, and to be filled with a sense of wonder and possibility. Uh, so Daniel maps this out for us through a series of visions. Unlike in uh, literature, where you, you read of maps and it requires the imagination to understand, well, in a similar way, this literature, particularly in chapters 8, through to 12, requires our imagination also. That's not to say that the events of which they speak are uh, imaginary, but rather they are actual events of the future, but spoken about figuratively. It's apocalyptic literature. We looked at it last week. It's literature which adopts the use of symbols, metaphors, and numbers to speak about cosmic activity and historical events. Uh, and as the name suggests, in, in apocryphal literature, apoc apocalyptic literature, uh, it's meant to reveal things to us rather than confuse us. Um, so that's what we should have in our minds as, as we head with Daniel. We, we get a map that transports us into the future uh, and what its purpose is for us. But it requires our imagination, and there are some strange things in there. And in looking at Four chapters, I won't satisfy every question that you would have of the text, but I hope we can get the big picture. It's broad brushstrokes as we go through. Well, the book of Daniel is named after its author and character. It's set in the 6th century, and it picks up when Jerusalem was besieged by Babylon. Uh, they, they, God's people, were, in chapter 1, delivered over to the king of Babylon because they had not lived as God's people had, uh, as God had wanted his people to do. And so they are carted off to Babylon along with uh, the, the representatives that go to Babylon, the, the, the brightest and, and the most talented go with them. Daniel is part of that uh, lot that heads across to Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar but also to Israel's temple's items are taken with it. It's a sign of being conquered by a foreign power. And so this book is written in exile. Uh, they are writing when they are currently uh, in 70 years uh, in Babylon. And it's broken roughly into two halves. This is just by way of introduction to help us. The first six chapters record the events of Daniel's life. Uh, and the second half, chapters 7 to 12, most of which we're addressing today, concerns visions of the future that Daniel has himself. 
It's a great story. The visions are wild. Um, but underneath the visions is a purpose and a lesson. It's to reveal something to Israel in exile. It's to reveal something of God's character to them. And it's calling them to live a certain way in light of the things that are happening. So let's uh, begin in, in chapter 8, transported into the future uh, and given perspective. Well, in chapter 8, it, it begins with a series of beasts. Now, it's an interesting theme as, we, as we've looked through Daniel. Uh, we saw that Nebuchadnezzar himself, when he tried to be like God, he was reduced, dehumanized to the extent of actually becoming a beast on all fours. And then in last week, we saw in a vision of the future, future kingdom kings and leaders were presented as, as strange beasts. And then we begin chapter 8, which is picking up the same themes as chapter 7. We begin with these, with these two beasts, a ram and a goat. Uh, the ram, we're told in verses 3 to 7, is charging from the east and in every direction it goes, it's conquering whatever is in its way. Later on, Gabriel will tell us that, that this, this ram represents the Medo-Persian Empire, which is in the east, and so as it moves, it's conquering everything in its path. Uh, each of these events we can kind of trace in history. It's probably around 539 BC, about nine years after this prophecy, this happens. Cyrus, the Persian, in his conquests, moving from the east across into Babylon and took over a vast sphere, expanding his empire. And that, that's where it begins. His first vision is, is of this ram and this expanding empire of the Medo-Persian uh, people. And we're told in, in verse 4 that no animal could stand against it. It trampled anything in its midst. One author writes this, the power of the Medo-Persian Empire was such that it was the unquestioned authority in the Near East for about two centuries. So Daniel gets this map of the future. What's coming? Well, the Medo-Persian Empire is going to come. It's going to be a powerful empire from the East and in its conquest, take Babylon and Israel with it. And then we get a picture of a second beast, a goat, uh, but the vision shifts its attention to the goat, and it's moving from the west. And this goat was moving along without touching the ground. It's a superior empire. And Gabriel tells Daniel later in his interpretation that this is the king of Greece. And colliding with the ram, the beast from the east was no match for the goat from the west. Uh, and we see that the Greek empire, led by Alexander the Great, took over and, in its conquest, took power through the whole empire, the goat becomes greater. Now, in both cases of the ram and the goat, they've got these horns, and they basically represent the different leaders of those empires. And so the goat has these horns, but finally one horn, a smaller horn, emerges, and it grows to be the greatest what we see in this vision is, as Daniel tells us, that this, this leader of this empire, of uh, the Greek empire, 
it grows exceedingly great and, and, and becomes a force to be reckoned with. It's a terrifying force. So strong is he, he tramples its opposition, but then what we see also is he tramples the people of God. In his arrogance, it says he, he grasps for the stars and he tramples the people of God. Daniel is not given this horn's identity, but as, as we look through history, the, the commentators all seem to suggest that this is Antonicus uh, the fourth, because he conformed most likely to this description. In his power, he particularly, with reference to the Jews, persecuted the Jews with great violence, desecrated the temple, uh, and he was a terrifying picture of power. And so in this map of the future, we're given this image of the ram and the goat, the Medo-Persian empire with its leaders, and then replaced by an even more terrifying power in the Greek empire. And so at the end of this vision, as Gabriel expands on this to Daniel, he is he's exhausted. But these empires, as powerful as they are, and the years in which they'll span going forward, we are told will come to an end. Because all kingdoms come to an end. And we read in verse 25 that this, this proud leader, this little horn who trampled on God's people, and in trampling on God's people you take on God, well, his end is met. He will be destroyed, in verse 25, but not by a human power. When you take on God, here titled the Prince of Princes, you will fail and you will fall. And even here we get a glimpse of the gospel. God's people will find deliverance from whatever forces of evil come against them. Ultimately, we know sin and death because of the Prince of Peace. But for now, the transitions that, that Daniel speaks of, of, of and, and sees in his vision of all these kingdoms, it reminds the, the Israel community that it's a long haul ahead of them. Uh, in their sight is, is turmoil and suffering before the end comes. But there's the promise that the end is coming. God is in control and he will finally have victory. He will bring an end to these endless kingdoms of tyranny. And so remember, this is a, this is a map to transport them out of the moment to see, as it were, the largest possible scale. The future was looking hard and uncertain, but the end was clear. And that was meant to bring them confidence in the midst of their circumstances. It's kind of like if they, if they had, a, had a map, uh, you, you'd, it's, it's the hugest scale that you could get on a map. Or if you, if you were looking at it on a, a device of some kind, you would be kind of zooming back out as much as possible to see the big picture to give you perspective to know that there is an end in sight. And, and even though the details in, in, the, in the intermediate period aren't known to us, we can trust that God is in control, he will be victorious, and so we can stand firm and stay strong. And as we just reflect on that for a moment, for us, in a similar way, we, we need this kind of perspective, don't we? Uh, in our circumstances, we can look at the map as if, you know, under a microscope. 
We, we can only see the events around us, and they can be overwhelming at times. And so we have failed to, we fail sometimes, I fail to sometimes have perspective that, that God is in control, he's working out his purposes, and that there is an end in sight. See, I don't know about you, but, but I like the idea of a, of a detailed roadmap of what's ahead. Uh, we might assume that you know, this, this would help us. If I just knew what the next stages were and what was going to happen, well, I could probably then, if I knew that, prepare myself and, and live well in that context. But God doesn't give us that. See, we, we think we might like to know, you know what suffering we might experience in the future, perhaps you know, what, what kind of end we will meet, um, be aware of the tragedies that might be ahead of us, or the failures and disappointments. But the reality is, while we might think that such knowledge would help us to live with greater purpose, actually, it would paralyze us. And so, like the vision for the Israelites, Daniel is given this, this scaled-back picture. The events in between are very sparse, but the end is clear. And the purpose of that is to help him to know and to help Israel have encouragement and hope as they seek to live in faithfulness to God. See, Daniel saw enough to know that there was hope, that there was an end. We do not know what tomorrow will bring, and we don't know how it will, uh, what things will be brought up, uh, but what keeps us moving forward is that picture of hope that, like Daniel got, that we get, that we know that the, in the end, God will be victorious and good to his people. Well, let's move on then. In chapter 9, we didn't read that, but it moves on, and in response to this, Daniel kind of is completely overwhelmed. Um, but it's interesting, his response in, in light of this. Uh, in chapter 9, we read that he... Uh, comes across the prophet Jeremiah and he reads the prophecy about how long Israel will be in exile. He's told 70 years. And in response to that, he goes through this lengthy confession. Uh, if, you, if you read it in uh, your own time, you'll see it's an extensive confession. It's his, his response to hearing this message. And it's interesting to think about. Confession is the appropriate response when when we kind of have been on the wrong map, as it were. In 1879, there was a, um, an, a naval exploration. Uh, the vessel was called the USS Jeanette. Um, I'm always fascinated by ship names. Uh, I get a weekly update from the drill that's going under the harbour. Apparently, the drill's name's Kathleen. <laughs> but Jeanette, uh, this ship, had a fateful end captained by Lieutenant George DeLong, uh, it, it famously sought in its expedition to get to the Arctic, but it was trapped and, and sunk en route. And, and the failure of the expedition wasn't so much because of misdirection, but was because it had the wrong map, a mistaken map. DeLong had based his entire expedition upon uh, a, a passage through to the North Pole, which was based on a German 
uh, cartographer, Dr. August Henrik Peterman. And Peterman had suggested that, that he thought that there was a, a theometric gateway that would be able to, you'd be able to, in your boat, plough through the ice and to get up to the north. But he was wrong, and the entire expedition kind of fell through. But DeLong had based his, his, his expedition upon this map, this path. And it turns out, all along, he was heading in the wrong direction. The biographer of, of this account says this, uh, that the team had to shed its organising ideas in all its unfounded romance and replace them with the reckoning of the way the Arctic really is. It's a confession of sorts, and it's a similar thing for us. Israel was in exile because they had let another map, as it were, determine their path. They had sought to be like the other nations, they had raised their sails, and they'd set their course on a faulty map. And in verse 5, we are told uh, that they had sinned, they had rebelled, and they had turned away, turned off path from God's commands and laws. And so now they're in exile, experiencing the consequences. They're shipwrecked, as it were. And so chapter 9, as Daniel does his big corporate confession... Is like, an, is like an about turning, a reckoning in a sort of a sort. Daniel 9, it speaks of uh, a returning to God, a confession and a shedding of those deluded ideas, the map in which they've chosen to live by. And it's, if you read through it, and we'll look through it more extensively next week, so we won't spend a lot of time here, but the prayer is beautifully simple. It's a humble recognition of who God is, his greatness, faithfulness and love, a recognition and confession of, of sin with a detailed recognition of the things in which they'd done and not done and an expression of repentance and a simple plea for mercy that God would show mercy and his, have his face shine on his people again, shine on his sanctuary. It's really lovely imagery. Well, in, in a similar way, confession for us is a shedding of our faulty maps James K. Smith writes this, Our culture often sells us a faulty, fantastical map of the good life that paints alluring pictures that draw us toward them. All too often we stake the expedition of our lives on them, setting sail toward them with every sail hoisted. Confession is that moment where we recognise that we've gone the wrong path. A shedding of our deluded organising ideas and seeing reality as it is and recognising our need and dependence upon God. And so confession is, is part of the shared life of God's people. You see that in the Old Testament in this example, you see it in the Psalms, but even in the Lord's Prayer that Jesus left us, confession is part and parcel of what it means to be God's people. Have you ever thought about that? The church is probably the only community where we kind of come together, like we did earlier, and, and together confess our failures and sins. I think there's something beautiful about that. It's powerful. And in fact, one author says, where the confession of sin dies out, the church is no longer the church. Martin Luther, the famous reformer, said, the Christian life is one of repentance and faith. It's not that we earn favour with God through our repentance, but it's a posture of our hearts toward him, recognising our faulty maps and following him. 
And in doing so, we do so in Christ, and we are always met with mercy. To pick up that language, it's as if God's face shines on us in him. Well, then in verses 24 to 27 of chapter 9, Gabriel comes to Daniel, and he says that he has heard his prayer, and he grants him reassurance that exile will end, but not in 70 years, but in a longer period, seven times 70. Again, numbers here we're not going to focus so much on, but it's future-oriented in the future. Israel will experience suffering for a time. There is consequence to their actions and sins, but it will not last forever. Grace will triumph in the end. Well, finally, as we, as we move through to the final vision, we're looking at chapters 10 to 12. It's one single vision over three chapters. We only read a bit of chapter 12. But in a similar way, it picks up some of the themes from chapter 7 and 8 about the future empire and kingdoms. In chapter 10, we find Daniel is weakened by fasting and prayer, but one, one comes, a heavenly one, and strengthens him. He's described as dressed in linen, and, and he's glorious in his, his dress. Now, the identity of this heavenly figure that comes to Daniel is, is contested. Some tantalizingly see enough substance in it here to identify it with the pre-incarnate Christ. Whether it is or not, I don't, I don't know. Uh, but this, this figure strengthens Daniel, and then he declares that he is there as a result of Daniel's prayers. And then he gives him another vision. He pulls back the curtains so that he can see the future. And he gives insight not just into the future of uh, the, the human kingdoms, but to the cosmic kingdoms, the spiritual battles at play behind them. If you, you know, I don't know if, if what your story is and, and your being here, but perhaps that idea of a, a, a spiritual realm is something that you're not familiar with. Well, the Bible is always unapologetic that our world is, is more than mere material. There are forces at play in our world beyond that which our eyes can see. And in the Bible, they're often described as, as always, almost uh, under some rules being behind the kind of tyranny that we see in certain kingdoms and leaderships. And I think the point there is not to kind of try and identify which ones uh, might have the spiritual forces and battles at play behind them, but just recognize that they are there that there is a spiritual battle at play. But again, Daniel is given the outcome of these battles. He's given a picture of the future which reveals their end. And then in chapter 11, we see that this figure reveals the future of God's people and, and the earthly kingdoms, and it's picking up on the same themes uh, that we saw in chapter 8 with the ram, Medo-Persia, and the goat, it's, it, it details the same events, but figuratively. There will be more kings of Persia to rise, but then, like the goat of chapter 8, Greece will come and eventually take power. There will be these succession of kings, and then one, like the little horn of chapter 8, will rise and be a terrifying uh, tyranny and ruler. As mentioned before, this is uh, what they think is the rule of Antiochus IV, and it seems to conform best to that description. 
and he, he will cause great turmoil. And, the, and in chapter 11, it goes to great length to describe the nature of his, his rule. So many verses are allocated to his atrocities, the violence, the idolatry, uh, the affront to God. And, and, and the point is that this, this leader is, is seemingly terrifying. He's awe-inspiring he's, in his wealth. He's, he's, he's beastly. Today, um, we, this morning in the 9.30 service, we had visitors with us because we commemorated Remembrance Day, which is tomorrow. We commemorate World War I particularly and the amazing sacrifice of those who served and indeed many who died uh, to establish the pursuit of peace in World War I. And World War I was described soon after as the war to end all wars. But as we, as we think about that now, as we think the war to end all wars after World War I, when we know history, we see that just around the corner, another terrifying power emerged who reigned with, with terror. See, our, our world seems to be this succession of fear-instilling despots, and there's more to come. And so as Daniel is looking down the barrel of of the future, he's seeing all these empires and indeed this, this one figure, the king of the north, who would be particularly an affront to God's people and, and terrifying. But again, what are we told? Well, in chapter 11 we're told, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, that this king too will fall, as will all others after him. It's a humbling thought because we can, we can look around the world, we can see the power that's exercised by, by individuals and nations and countries and we can forget that that's happened before. Their rule will come to an end. See, God promises to put an end to this beastly kind of, of reign. He makes this promise to Daniel and for Israel in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. This leader will be brought to nothing. And those in, in exile, those suffering for a time, they may die or the nation itself may die, go to sleep, go to the dust, but deliverance will come. It's a promise of, of resurrection. God would restore them. He would revive this people whose names are found written in the book. It's a picture, as it were, of, of the death and the resurrection of Israel in the Old Testament. And God's promise of resurrection here is that God would restore his people from exile, make them a people again. But of course, this in one sense points forward as well. It gives us a gospel glimpse, doesn't it? It points forward to another resurrection beyond exile. It points forward to a resurrection of our Saviour who came and established a kingdom. And as we saw last week, he established a kingdom not through tyranny, but through loving service. As you expect, a king that would come and, and, and usurp the authority of these other kings, you would expect it to be this powerful beast, but the revelation 
portrays this coming king as a slain lamb, one who experiences his own exile, suffering and death, and ultimately a resurrection for us, so that we too can be restored, reconciled and revived as a people in relationship with God. In Christ, we are reconciled and revived, people who were dead in sin but brought to life. And our names are written in the book of life, as it describes in Revelation. But you'll notice there too, there was a, there was a corresponding warning of judgment for those who would reject him. Those who would rise, but who had rejected God, would rise to shame and God's contempt. It's a theme of judgment, which has come up multiple times in the book of Daniel. Now, warnings in the Bible, as we read them, we've got to read them that they're always there to push us towards something good. It's like prohibitions in the Bible. When we read things like the Ten Commandments, it says, you shall not. The reason it's saying that is because it's wanting to affirm and protect something that's, that's good. And so warnings in the Bible are always there to push us to the good. And, and so as we hear this, this uh, rising uh, and that some will rise to life and be restored, but others to shame and contempt, it's, it's pushing us. Here it is a summons to go to Christ because in him there is restoration, reconciliation and resurrection. And then in verse 3 of chapter 12, it's a promise. It says, Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. If you remember that the terrifying picture of this king in the north, he, he tried to ascend to the stars, he grasped for the stars, yet in contrast here, he's upstaged by the truly wise, those who did not grasp for stars but received the gift of shining like stars, and not just for a human lifetime, but forever and ever. This is where our final reading comes into it. This is the hope of the resurrection, that the future king would bring a new kingdom through his death and resurrection. In, Daniel, uh, in 1 Peter, it speaks of it this way, in his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. So as we close, this, this, this promise of resurrection to Daniel, though temporary then, was meant to lift Israel out, give them a map to, to transport them to see and have perspective, to fill them with wonder and possibility, and encourage them to persist in faithfulness. Well, as readers in Christ, as we read this, we too are lifted out of ourselves. We see the end. We see what God has accomplished in Christ in bringing an end to all the rule of tyranny, of sin and death, and we are raised to new life. It transports us to see the picture of the end where we will be with him forever. Maps have the power to transport us, to lift us out of the moment. But we need to be following true maps, as we've seen, that will give us the right direction towards the right destination, that point us towards the kingdom. Remember, faulty maps will, will promise us the good life here and now. Their scale is small. But what Daniel has done is kind of panned out for us so we can see the big picture and have perspective. He's given us the largest possible picture, a bright future. 
There will be hardship along the way. Daniel is saying to Israel before they are restored, but they are given proper perspective of the end. And so too for us. Our map is future-oriented. It's focused on our resurrection as we follow Christ. But in in the midst of our Babylon, our circumstances in the day-to-day, we are called to to be faithful in the present. So what do we do? Well, we get up tomorrow and we do what we did today. We entrust ourselves to Jesus and seek to live faithfully. I'll close with these words from James K. Smith. We live leaning forward, bent on arriving at the place we long for. Let's pray. Father, in many ways, this is a confusing series of visions, but yet as we've looked at the big picture in broad brushstrokes, in many ways insufficiently, we, we get to see perspective that, that you grant, that you promise to be faithful to your people, that you promise an end to the tyranny of sin and death and suffering, And you promise resurrection. And we know as those in Christ that this promise is ours. And so we thank you for that. And so granted this perspective, uh, we pray that we might seek to live faithfully uh, in a future-oriented way. We might not be stuck, as it were, just looking down in our circumstances or perhaps backwards in regret, but we might lean and press forward longing for that future which awaits us, putting one foot in front of the other and faithfully seeking to follow Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.